0: Let me see. I'm going to do this for now just so they can kind of stand. I so appreciate... Wow, look at the house. So many people here. Thank you so much. This is really fantastic. And I'm so thrilled that my colleague Chris Freeman very generously offered to have a conversation with me tonight about my work. So I can't wait for that. Um, You are very awesome for doing that. Thank you. Um, But I thought... um, just very quickly I'd read a section from um, a story called Two Crazy Whores um, who my editor Dan Dan Smitenka, where did he go he's like yay there's Dan we were trying to come up for a story uh, for a title come, come up with a title for that uh, story and that's Dan's title Two Crazy Whores and I love it
1: that was actually the
2: subject line of the email <laughs>
0: Okay, so the background of this story is um, I was actually on a plane sleeping and I heard this mother talking to her daughter. She was being really horrible. She was calling her daughter a whore and stupid and um, I just couldn't believe my ears and I immediately started writing the dialogue down in my um, journal and it got me thinking about why a mother would talk to her daughter that way and how when we grow up we forget what it is to be a young adult or a kid um, and why some parents might be motivated to be very hard on their kids. And I had one of those kind of strict families where I was like, what do you guys think I'm going to turn out to be? They were just like so hardcore about everything I did and it was so relentless and now I realize they were just trying to make sure that I turned out all right. and so I'm hoping that's what was going on with this mother Um, so I'm starting in the middle of the story which is the mother's flashback to when she was a child and getting into trouble and it's something she's forgotten about her life but um, hearing this my glasses are all wanky Hearing this mother talk to her daughter this way has taken her back. Just a short section. Um, she's she's gone. Um, she skipped school with a friend, and they are at their friend Kate Crazy Kim's house or Crazy Kate's house, and um, they're kind of in trouble. So she held her finger up to her lips, saying, without saying, shh, "Dude, if you moved, we're fucked." and Gabs had moved anyway pulling a shoe out from under her quiet, calm and slow like removing a card from a card house they're hiding in a closet um, just so you know she adjusted her coke bottle glasses framed in heavy tortoiseshell one eye looked tiny one normal sized because the tiny eye had the thicker lens she looked at Val for clues on what to do because they were sitting in the closet in Crazy Kate's room hiding out because Crazy Kate's dad was home it was crazy kate's idea to come over after school and play records and raid the fridge it seemed like a good idea in the moment and they had walked to crazy kate's house blowing big bubble yum bubbles and being as loud as they could in their quiet neighborhood all the houses looked dark inside the windows a collective of closed eyes which gave the girls permission but now they were stuck Val and Gabs were not allowed to hang out because they were a bad influence, Crazy Kate's dad said. But their parents said that they were not to hang out with Crazy Kate because she was the bad influence with their jeans so tight you could see her you-know-what and her makeup just cakes of blue and green and purple, making her blue eyes so big they took up her whole face. She drank too and smoked pot and climbed out her window at night and fucked guys. Their parents didn't even know the half, but they still called her a crazy white girl. Valerie and Gabby loved her, though, because she was a badass, and they weren't. Their leases were short. You guys need a trip slip just to take a dump, Crazy Kate always said, pointing and laughing at them. Your mama walked you to school every day, she always said. And no, they don't, Gabby would say. They drive us. <laughs> but Crazy Kate's parents kept her on a short leash, too, especially her dad. Crazy Kate just chewed that leash up and leash up and shit on the carpet every time, she said. My mom's an idiot, she would say. She's so fucking blind, man. And don't even get me started on my dad. Don't talk to me about him. Her dad was the one that thought Gabby and Val were bad for Crazy Kate. In 1981, they were ruining the neighborhood just by being there. Their houses side by side, too much black in one place. They were scared, though. They weren't supposed to be there. One minute in the closet, and Val had already resolved to listen to her parents forever if she got out of this. If she had listened to them, she wouldn't be sitting in the dark, smelling sour, dirty shoes and clothes. Through a in the crack in the sliding glass door, or through the crack in the sliding door of the closet, Val could see amber sun streaming through the shutters of Crazy Kate's window, and dust swirled around in the light like a fairy tale. They had been hanging out, listening to music, laughing at Billy Squire singing, Stroke Me, Stroke Me, when Crazy Kate heard someone coming through the front door. Get in the closet, she said, not even in a panic. She said it like it was the right thing to do for the moment, and they would be all right as long as Crazy Kate's dad didn't know they were there. Don't say shit or come out until I tell you, Crazy Kate said. She took the comb out of her back pocket and ran it through her gray-looking feathered hair and then pushed them in and slid the door closed. She left the room and they heard muffled talk and then raised voices coming from down the hall. No, I'm not. I won't. I'm not going to. And then they heard go to your room and footsteps, but they could tell that it wasn't cr- just Crazy Kate that was coming. Now Val and Gabs huddled together in the closet The closer the steps got, they even held each other's hands and Gab squeezed her eyes shut, willing herself invisible. Crazy Kate and her dad were in the room now, not saying anything. Valerie heard the creak of the bed being sat on once and then again. She and Gabs were still, trying not to breathe. Outside of the closet, no one said anything. Val wanted to look. It was too quiet. What was going on? She almost put her eye up to the small crack between the closet door and the wall, but she didn't. Crazy Kate's dad might see her, and then what? Crazy Kate said, Leave me alone, God. And then her dad said, I am tired of telling you the same things over and over, Catherine. Val looked at Gabs and mouthed, (laughs) Catherine? Crazy Kate called Gabriella Gabs and Val Valley Girl, but this Catherine they had never heard of. Catherine sounded old like somebody's mother. She raised her eyebrows to make it into a question and Gab shrugged. She could picture Crazy Kate's dad. He wore a suit and tie to work. He was an accountant and he always wore a shining silver watch. His suits were real, the kind made by tailors from scratch, handmade with rich material, not J.C. Penney's, not Sears, where her parents bought everything. She thought he was handsome like a father on TV with a deep voice and angry green eyes. His hair was a gray crew cut. "'Your dad's kind of hot,' Val had said to Crazy Kate once at lunch. "'Gross,' Gabs had said, splitting a Twinkie into three parts and giving the other pieces to Val and Crazy Kate. "'Crazy Kate had thrown Gabs a fierce look. "'Fuck you,' Gabs said. "'That's my dad.' And then she screwed up her nose and turned her lips into an ugly frown. She threw her head back, laughing a crazy laugh. You want em, Valley girl, she said? You can have them. And then she threw her Twinkie on the ground. I can't eat that shit. I'm trying not to be a cow. <laughs> In the closet, though, Val was listening very hard. They could only hear the bed making pinging noises every now and then, like somebody just moving a leg or maybe leaning back. And then... Your mother and I, we know what's best for you. Don't you understand that? All this running around? You're not a whore. Stop acting like one. Gabs looked at Val and frowned. The downturned corners looked exaggerated on her round, otherwise cheerful face. All your little whore friends, is this what those black girls teach you? Climb out of your window in the middle of the night? Val looked at Gab's angry face, but Val, she had to put her hand over her mouth so she wouldn't make noise when she laughed. Her body spasmed as she sat there, a tight, clenched ball. He was stupid, Crazy Kate's dad. It was an epiphany. Some parents knew stuff because they were older and wiser like hers, who she would listen to forever and ever if she ever got out of this. But some parents did not. Crazy Kate's dad was a dummy. He didn't even know that two black girls who had never been touched were hiding in his closet and that his daughter didn't care at all about whether she was a slut or not. She was the only girl in school who didn't care and she was the only girl in school who the girls and the boys were afraid of. She laughed at their little dicks and told everybody she knew they were little because she'd seen a lot in her 13 years. (laughs) Val understood all of a sudden sitting in a closet... That crazy Kate's father didn't even know that she had fucked Jaime and Russell and Javier and Brody and Kurt and Stanley and Harry and Ronnie. That's not why she was a slut. She was a whore because she didn't want to do what her dad wanted her to do when he wanted her to do it. And I'll end there so we can talk with this. Thank you. Yeah, that'd be
1: great. I'll just bartend before we get
2: started.
1: <laughs> Dana, that was wonderful. I love that story.
0: KT, KT in the house. Hi. Yeah.
1: Thank it's you, a Chris. Reverse miracle. I just turned water wine into water. Okay. So my friend Taylor Negron. Some of you guys might know who Taylor Negron was. Unfortunately, he died last year. Talked about what he called California Gothic. And I think you um, write a lot of California gothic, now that I think about it. Um, and you have a lot of it, and even a, a gothic title in The Not Quite mm. Dark.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so we're going to talk about that. But I thought I wanted tonight to start with Elsewhere California. Do you guys know this wonderful novel that Dana published?
0: Uh, thank you. Hi, this, Sarah. See you.
1: This is a novel that... Um, I love and I teach it regularly in my Los Angeles stories class at USC and Dana graciously comes in and and is brilliant for my students and it's always great for you to come in Um, but I thought I want you to read one little passage and then we'll talk a little bit about this fabulous book because one of the things that interests me um, about your work one of the many things that interests me about your work is how you talk about Kind of location and place Mm -hmm. and those kind of things. But also, you integrate pop culture, and we're essentially the same age. We Uh, won't go into those details. uh, Um, uh. But um, your memories and my memories overlap a lot, even though I was in Georgia and you were in Southern California when we were living through this era. Mm -hmm. And so, I recognize so many things and so many reactions, and I think a lot of your readers also connect that way and even my students who don't know a lot of those references can still feel that enthusiasm
2: yeah, and yeah. that
1: longing that you have so um, maybe start with Keith Loved Zeppelin okay. right here at the top of that okay. page.
0: I'm going to hold it back so I don't have to put my glasses. Okay on.
1: I could hold it for you. <laughs> I used Just to, say, to the end of the paragraph there? Well you know what we need to hear about.
0: Oh, okay. Keith Loved Zeppelin and Bowie too because his friend John liked them. When we first saw Bowie, we got the shock of our lives. He was on Soul Train, and my family was visiting Keith's family in Victorville. We watched Soul Train like it was church. (laughs) We needed to dance like those people going down the line. We just knew we were black swans that were going to look like them one day. Faith, we had it. People all over the world, we sang along with the theme song. People all over the world. But we didn't know what that meant until we saw something that made us think our eyes were lying. Everybody loved Bowie's golden years, but when we saw him on Soul Train, we freaked out. A.V., Keith called out. He was adjusting the hanger, which served as an antenna on his black and white television in his bedroom. Look, Keith said, Trip out. I ran to his room and looked at the thin white man singing on Soul Train. Boyd was wearing a dark suit with a light shirt, and he was moving very slowly as though he were high or drunk or too cool to sweat. He's singing fame, I said. We love that song. I thought he was black. We stared at the television as though we didn't know whether to laugh or cry. I'm tripping, Keith kept saying. I'm really tripping. Me too, I said. He white? I don't care Keith said he bad he a bad dude we were traumatized and amazed who was this man who wasn't anything close to what he looked and sounded like who let him do that who let him be white and weird
1: and on soul train that's good Um, so I wanted to isn't that a great passage oh my god And it is hilarious to go on YouTube and show your students that that actual performance of fame and golden years and and kind of have them absorb that. Um, But for me, that's such a uh, kind of um, representative passage in your work because you've worked in um, the kind of cross-racial affiliations you've always had in your life and the... um, the ability of that childlike point of view to just kind of be dazzled and shocked and amazed all at once. Mm -hmm. So can you say a little bit about kind of where that kind of sentiment comes from in you and how you try to communicate it that way?
0: I guess as a writer, I'm always frustrated in literature where even in literature, people... Hi, Ellie, sorry. (laughs) People... are living in these strangely segregated worlds even now so that you don't get... Um, necessarily a black character who is interested in Bowie or vice versa and I just wanted to kind of create that mosaic of all the influences that we all experience um, and to create a depth and a richness um, in the black worlds I create um, that aren't strictly black and so you know someone like David Bowie was a huge influence on me and and i just wanted to own that and and um the other day i was wearing a t-shirt it had a sun records label and someone act he actually this man walked up to me and he said something like do you even know who was on the sun records label oh dear i know <laughs> And it was just again like trying to break through that kind of ignorance, just like as a black woman wearing a Sun label T-shirt, that I would know who what Sun Records was, and you know who signed on that label, and what music was stolen in order to be on that label. Right. right. Let's just get that right. straight too, right? right. It
1: ain't nothing um, but a hound dog. Yeah,
0: exactly. And so again, just like uh, trying to complicate the identities on the page, we don't see that in fiction necessarily. So I wanted to do
1: that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and and you introduced us to Keith in that passage, um, and he is Avery's cousin. Yeah. And I want to look at one other short passage from this book about Keith as well, because um, part of also what's fascinating about Elsewhere, right, is Avery looks at Keith's life and recognizes that. If a few things went differently, her life could have been more like Keith's mm-hmm. than hers turned out to be. And part of what's wonderful about Avery is watching her become an artist, right? Finding her voice and finding her um, kind of like the collage kind of thing that she works with. And I always think about, when I, when I think about some of her, uh, some of what Avery does in this book, I think about that line in Mrs. Dalloway when she leaves the party She's about to go back down. Mm. And Wolf says, she must assemble. Which means get her shit together. right? She must pull herself back to the moment. And I think so much of what Avery's trying to do is assemble. Mm -hmm. Right? Assemble. Mm -hmm. Assemble. And so let me give you one. This is a really short little bit. Um, There's been a break-in at Avery and Massimo's house. And Avery's pretty sure that Keith probably did it. And Massimo wants to call the police, right? And it's not a possible, it's not a possibility. Um, So just maybe from he is sitting, just to the end of that page. Okay. Uh,
0: He is sitting halfway in the kitchen and I join him, setting myself on the cool tile of the floor. He lets me take his hand this time. Massimo... I squeeze his hand. I understand everything that you are saying to me, but listen to what you are asking me to do. You are asking me to put family in jail. You are asking me to pick up the phone, to stand back while you pick up the phone, and send Keith to jail. You are telling me that I have to put my cousin in jail. He will have put himself in jail. This is true, and this is not true. This is what Massimo cannot be made to understand unless I figure out a, may, a way to make all the stories I have told him come together so that he can understand.
1: So for me, there's a, there's a kind of, I don't know, desperate faith, mm-hmm. if I can use a kind of oxymoron, right, that um, Avery ultimately believes she can get people to understand, but it's going to be very difficult. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, for me, such a metaphor for, for the work that you're trying to do, right? Yeah, thanks. Thank you. So, and and I think at the, the culmination scene in the book at the gallery, mm-hmm. and we've talked about this, when I was, re- you guys know that scene, right, where the nephew gets in trouble by the security guard, you know, mm-hmm. kind of racially profiled. I was reading that thinking, oh, please, oh, please don't, Fuck this up. (laughs) Because I was afraid you were going to go one way with the ending and you went the right way instead. Thank you. And I was so happy. I was so happy. (laughs) Because it could go either way. Yeah. You know? Um, But the whole idea of bringing everybody together at the end of the book at the gallery with the art. And with the sort of pieces that mm-hmm. that Avery's offering, and um, and you can see my brilliant segue into a collection of short stories, right? <laughs> um, so, just say a little bit more about how you think of your own kind of the things you're trying to pull together to assemble for your for yourself, and then for your audience.
0: Yeah, I mean, part of the thing, the structure of Elsewhere, California, has that kind of collage like feel to it. Um, It has a dual narrative and then it has a shifting voice the more assimilated that Avery becomes. And then it's kind of told in just sections that are kind of quilt-like. I like to think of them that that way. Um, Because again, I feel as though the way to tell a story about America or identity... Or Los Angeles. Or Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Or... Blackness or girlhood there's all these things I'm trying to talk about baseball in the book um, that you really just can't tell this in a straightforward narrative you have to come at it in pieces and you have to come at it at angles and you have to put the pieces to, together to sort of layer the story and so that's what I was trying to do in elsewhere and thank god Dan, Dan was an amazing editor yes. on the book he saved me well,
1: it's a difficult um, book in yeah. a lot of ways
0: yeah because I was trying to do a lot there was even a hypnotherapy section that Dan was like nah, nah stop <laughs> hypnotherapy is taking it over the top well so. you know
1: there's that magic thing that happens in writing right yeah. where you're you know it's like you're writing a book And you're thinking, I've got this, it's going, Mm -hmm. I've got it. But you are pulling together a lot of stuff in Elsewhere California. And I'll give a couple of examples. Like, I mentioned Virginia Woolf. When you're reading Mrs. Dalloway, you know that Virginia Woolf is going to stick that landing. Mm -hmm. Like, you just know she's got it. Isherwood in single man, he's totally in control. But Joan Diddy, and play it as it lays, she says, You know, I don't know what the hell I was doing.
0: Yeah, more of that school, yeah. Right? Yeah. But
1: there's that sense at a certain point of feeling like, Okay. This is this is it, right? You have put the pieces out there. They're in the right order and you can kind of slight kind of quietly yeah. leave yeah, the room.
0: Yeah. And I felt that I felt um, it was funny the way it was writ- it was written and it, it was not linear. So I would write Avery at 40 and then the next day write her at 9. <laughs> and then writer some other like so the voices were always different too so that was really hard because she sounds different at 40 than she does when she's nine and so it was very schizophrenic like every day I was just writing a different voice in a Mm -hmm. different place and she was in different classes and
1: so you had to keep going out going into it and coming out of it and going into and sort of find it and Dan I think really helped you yeah. understand shape, your own book in a, yeah, in a certain shape, way. Yeah. yeah. Um I just last week have been teaching The Color Purple. First time I have reread it in a dozen years. And there's a certain point when you get toward the end of that because when you're in Africa with Nettie and Alice, <laughs> yeah. you're like is she gonna, what the yeah, hell is she doing? She doing
2: yeah. But
1: at a certain point you realize she, Alice knows the ending. Yeah. And she just she brings it home, you know, in this beautiful way and it holds up. I was so happy to see how well it held up. It held up. And I feel the same way with elsewhere. On rereading, there are all those little details, and you go, "Oh, I didn't even notice that little nuance before." So it's a deeply layered story. Thank you. And yeah. the complexity holds up; it doesn't even if you know everything about it. It still is has that richness. Thank you. Um, so let's go then to the new collection in the Not Quite Dark. Um, how is it for you to because this in includes work over what about a decade? The oldest story is from 2005. Okay. Yeah. So, how was it to go back and relook at some of your earlier stuff, stuff that you were writing while you were writing elsewhere and then newer stuff to understand your you know the through line of your for yourself and sort of the assemblage that you were trying to create?
0: Well it's funny, I wasn't trying to assemble it or create it in any way. I was just writing stories and it's only after they're collected that you see these kind of themes that I'm obsessed with as a writer. (laughs) Right. And so your métier. Yeah, I think they're they they're very disparate, different seeming stories, but they're all talking a lot about history and place and um, a lot of class. I'm obsessed with
2: mm-hmm.
0: where people come from and where they end up. Um, and so, so a lot of the stories hit those kind of notes over and over again, but I think in very different ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: No, I think that's true too. And it's a, so it's a very satisfying read actually because you you know you're reading one kind of story, and you're like, okay, that's interesting. Then you get to the next one, it's quite different. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So you you feel like you're reading sort of. Um, a kind of I don't know um, like almost a different writer in a certain way but there are those through lines and the downtown Los Angeles stuff especially that's where you live that's where many of your characters are living in this Mm -hmm, book mm -hmm. Um, you've been kind of um, studying downtown LA I have for a decade also Mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. so what are you learning about it
0: I'm learning that we're all going to die yeah I mean, really.
1: <laughs> it's
0: so scary. Just the the idea my building's built in 1905 by Henry Edward Huntington and and it's a very old building and so I'm very haunted on a daily basis yeah. by the age of the place and the history of the place and who used to live here, there. And, you know, I'm living there now, but 100 years from now, I will not be. That building might not even be there. Right. So I'm constantly thinking about the passage of time and what it means to be um, in a line of history, what it means to be coming behind someone else um, and leaving something behind or being informed by the past and so a lot of the stories have that where people are just thinking about the past and, and the now and their place in it mm-hmm. and so I end with that story, the story of Biddy Mason that's kind of a in my mind it kind of wraps up all that history. I was
1: going to say it's kind of an anchor story in the book I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm.
0: and uh,
1: she brings together the story of Henry Huntington and Biddy Mason mm-hmm. in this kind of wonderful sort of two sides meeting in the middle
0: Yeah, in the
1: history of of downtown Los Angeles.
0: And I really, I just felt an obligation to get her story in this book. Um, If you don't know who she is, she was a philanthropist. She was owned by a Mormon slave master named Robert Smith and um, so he was a Mormon and he was told not to bring his slaves to California because slavery was illegal in California, but he she walked behind a caravan from Mississippi to California and she got here and when she got here she was like, yo, I don't have to be a slave anymore. (laughs) And so she um, went to court and earned her freedom And, and so her history is very invisible and I was thinking about the other histories that are very prevalent, that we know the story um, we think of well, LA.
1: Huntington's name is all over it's everything. It's all over the place, yeah. Right.
0: And um, and so she was a midwife, and she helped feed hungry people, and I was just thinking that idea of, you know, midwifery is one of those things that people don't think about, but she helped people enter into the world. The world. Yeah. And where are they, and where are their people, and it goes on and on. Mm. It's so interesting to me. Um, and Huntington's uncle told him that when he he wanted to accept a job as a Pullman porter for like two dollars a month or something and his uncle told him like don't take the job it'd be better if you worked for free Um and so I was trying to think about that and,
1: and Huntington the was privilege of, a, of working for free yeah, yeah but Huntington also was a bit of a fuck up
0: well of course yeah I mean maybe not of course I don't think people knew that until I read that biography I don't think I quite quite. But But you know like Biddy Mason working for free as a slave is very different from your rich uncle telling you don't you don't have to work or you know work for free we don't it's beneath you to work for two dollars how was
1: it to write historical fiction because you haven't done much of that i don't think
0: no i don't i didn't think i liked it but then you know how people who do research you just get sucked in mm-hmm. and i really thought i hated research but i read this really boring huntington biography by james thorpe and it was like 800 pages <laughs> and it was just all he was a pillar of society it was all that but then there were all these weird things that that were just glossed over that were amazing right. like I screwed up five businesses before I finally landed on the thing that made me rich in California. Mm -hmm. Which was just, I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. Mm -hmm.
1: um,
0: So I guess, again, it's back to the hidden history, which I was really fascinated with, not the history that was just kind of. And the layers and layers and
1: layers of that, too. Yeah, it was
0: really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Because you have
1: to peel back a lot of layers on Huntington to get to that. Mm -hmm. Those truths, those little side stories, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And if you think about the privilege of somebody who can fall and land softly and fall and land softly over and over again, Biddy never had a chance to do that. No, she had
0: one chance and she nailed it. Yeah,
1: hello. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's a really, and and it's kind of a surprising story when you get to the end of the book and suddenly you're kind of in the 19th century, you Mm -hmm. know, Mm -hmm. and you're thinking, and you recognize these names and you realize, okay, this is... This is actually some information here, and some and some history. That's, um, you know, it's like parallel. I mean, it's he's a railroad guy. They're parallel yeah, exactly. lines, you know. Exactly. Um, yeah. And yet, they're part of that American fabric and that Los Angeles fabric. Yeah.
0: And just the idea you know again, i I take the train everywhere, and so the story ends in the now, and I just was trying to tie all that together, just like living downtown, living in a building that he built, um, being connected to this slave as an african American woman, just all of that richness of like how we 're all connected and how history's trying to tell us that we're not really mm-hmm. um and so I just wanted to bring us all together how history
1: and how current events are trying to tell us that we're not not, right one of the things we talked about in in my gender studies class last week is this idea of the way the term identity politics is now being used by the right Mm -hmm. uh, as a thing that divides us you know instead of as a thing that identifies us, Absolutely, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so it's so interesting the way that the, the kind of language of things that we thought were terms that were helping us understand our lives are being used to obfuscate and confuse be- people. Absolutely. You know, and manipulate. Um, yeah. And so it's interesting that you um, are using that history in a very non polemical way to just kind of look at these two lives.
0: You yeah know? yeah I mean I hope I'm not it's like a
1: recuperation of... no it's like more of a recuperation thing right like this is a ghost of downtown LA but it's also a ghost of America absolutely Fitty, that is. yeah
0: that's exactly what I was trying to do and then in the other stories um, there are a lot of male black male characters in my collection and in some ways I was trying to insert that story in literature too because I feel as though most days if you have African American male characters in literature, they're pathologized in this way where they just can't be a dude having a beer Mm -hmm. going to the movies. It's got to be about all this other stuff and so I have characters who are just guys trying to live their lives who happen to be black and that's part of the project too is to just have just folks in literature as real people and real characters that aren't just sort of walk in spice for other kinds of stories. Cause that was usually what happens in fiction is like, right. there's a black guy or there's mm-hmm. an Asian person. Mm-hmm. And then you get on with the, like this white person story. Right. Yeah. And so I wanted to have that kind of presence be very matter of fact mm-hmm. so that oftentimes the story isn't about race at all, but we've got, these people in the stories well, the living Libera- in California. The Liberace
1: then, you know. Museum I think is a, a very interesting example of that too, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, it's a biracial couple who yeah. are on a road trip, yeah, right? Yeah. And there's all this consciousness about like, is this woman making me wait too much? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, didn't, wasn't I here before those people were here? You know? yeah. And the, bo- the, the boyfriend, they're not...
0: No, your boyfriend, yeah.
1: Doesn't really see it.
0: No, yeah.
1: And then the character starts thinking, well, am I being overly sensitive?
0: Yeah. Uh, Yeah, the Liberace Museum is... um I'm fascinated with museums and I got to go to the Liberace Museum in Vegas before it closed and it was like, it was really amazing and touching and, and tacky but really touching kind of like him yeah, and just this, I remember the woman giving us the tour was still, it was back in 2001 just telling us that Liberace hadn't gotten married because he hadn't found the right woman and
1: <laughs> he I mean, looked I, long and hard <laughs> for that too, let me tell yeah. you
0: but but the point of the story is this idea of how museums ironically obfuscate that history and so for instance um I took issue, there's the the Civil Rights Institute in Alabama um, and it's just this really lame, to me it's a lame music, it's like, there's like Martin Luther King and then there are We Shall Overcome. It has the great like, fountain thing though, in yeah. the front
1: that is kind of awesome. But
0: it kind of um, just erases the horror
1: Right. Of what actually took place. It's like a plantation tour. <laughs> yeah. And okay. so,
0: yeah. yeah. And so the Liberace Museum actually, I was feeling all these feelings for him because I was just thinking, oh, the lie he was living as a gay man mm-hmm. was so fascinating to me. And this museum actually, while they're trying to cover it up, I can really feel his identity and his mm-hmm. gayness in right. this museum. It was really fascinating. Mm-hmm. And so,
1: it's like the truth is right in front of you. Exactly,
0: right. exactly. So, in the Liberace Museum, I'm trying to get, you know, this idea is that this couple isn't quite talking about the things mm-hmm. they need to talk right. about. And the Liberace Museum is a catalyst for an opportunity to get there and talk about um, race and
1: what's really going And identity in yeah. general and people's perceptions of you and your public and private yeah. selves. Yeah. Um, Yeah,
0: so there's a scene in the restaurant, it's like rainforest, have you been to Vegas? It's like this, like, you're in this rainforest waiting for your burger or something, and it's happened to me a lot where someone is just like, maybe I'm waiting in line, and someone just kind of steps in front and gives their order or something, and I'm like, is that a thing that just happened, or am I being crazy, or... And uh, so she, that character Charlotte, she kind of descends into this loop of like freaking out about mm. has racism just happened to me, or am
1: I crazy? <laughs> right. And or is uh, it just rudeness? Yeah, is it just you
0: know? So right. um, again, like making it plain, Maybe or the lack of making it plain is a thing that makes us all crazy, really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, and that and it and it and it makes us paranoid. Yeah, right. Yeah, um, and that's. Uh, and certainly, in a certain way, a, a public figure like Liberace lived a paranoid Yeah. An utterly paranoid life, right? Yeah. Um, if you guys so,
0: have not seen that HBO, oh my it's God. amazing. Michael
1: Douglas, when that with the day yeah. off, oh my god oh. I love it so much and yeah. Rob Lowe, you guys have to see <laughs> Rob Lowe playing the plastic surgeon, his head so much Botox, his face <laughs> won't move um, and can barely open his eyes yeah. it is hilarious um, so Dana, I feel like we should have some questions and answers, unless maybe you could read, I wonder if you should read the little tiny one more tiny passage sure, just a um, tiny um, on time. I okay. was thinking about either the art story, you know I love that going to the grove um, or she deserves everything that why don't we talk about she deserves everything she gets okay because that ending is you could read that ending and yeah it's okay. provocative okay don't you think yeah um, I mean it is you guys just wait um, it's the it's right before, it's the anti-penultimate hmm story. I'm an English professor. I know those big words. Okay. Um, You want to tell them a little bit about the story and just read the, um, I guess that little bit right there is enough.
0: Okay. So this story... Because it's a um, really
1: great story um, and it's the beginning of the school year so it seems almost in a way.
0: Uh, I was um, just thinking about the prevalence of sexual assault particularly on our university campuses and I was thinking about how to write about that um, and kind of turn it on its head Um, so in this story she deserves everything she gets which was lucky enough for me was first published in the Paris Review Uh, um. (laughs) Um, I wanted again in my fascination about sort of nuances and layers that there is no kind of easy response or an easy um, rationale or reason for why these things happen
1: but um, and it's also a story about privilege and it's a story about very privilege much, very much it? yeah and about naivete right and right. parental overprotection
0: right and so I'm not sure how to co- give this last paragraph the they've context they've been talking
1: about she's getting ready to go to, way to college yeah so everybody's yeah. talking about how to protect yourself and don't be stupid and don't drink too much and all that right
0: right and so, and my narrator, um, not to give the story away, she had invited her girlfriend to college. They're both poor girls and one of them gets to go to college and the other doesn't. So she says, "Come to campus. These Colombians are coming and they're really hot and I'm totally going to take care of you. It's going to be great." And she lets her down because she's not looking at things that she needs to be looking at. And so in this story they've trying to tell this young college girl to look out for herself. And so and her name is Gertrude and so Gertrude says, "I'm ready for bed." She's shivering. She has to get up early for surfing. She pushes her ugly glasses at the bridge of her nose and stands. We've bored her, her mother says, but she needs to know. I know, I know, don't get raped. And then she hugs each of us, me last. I grab her by the wrist as she turns to go, and she looks down at my brown hand. I say, I hope you were listening to your parents. I mean, really, really listening. I was, Gertrude says. Don't I always? Her lip curls up in one corner. corner. Smiling back at her, I think, you little bitch, you're not as simple as we think you are. Good for you. Then her face goes solemn again, wide-eyed and innocent. She walks into the house and up the stairs into a room that is all white with billowy curtains.
1: I just love that ending. It's just, you. you little okay. bitch.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. So, um, can, Professor, um, can you make me
2: understand psychological realism, noir, oh. calcine-gothic, how, oh, how do you see things stack up?
1: Um, well, professor one, professor two, we can both answer that. Um, I was actually, I'm glad you asked that because I was thinking about the relationship between realism and reality right um, and, there, and I teach we're going to be reading this later in the semester uh, in my contemporary prose class I teach an essay by James Wood is that his name Wood or Woods Wood right Boy, um, who writes about he published a book about realism recently and he talks about how you know in a novel you would never be allowed and Dan can probably back this up to have like two main characters that have the same name but like in reality that happens Right, mm-hmm. so there's this reality that's exterior to literature, and then there's the realism that looks you know that's about credibility and that kind of stuff um, and I think, Dana, what you do so well in your in your work is go closer to to reality than realism maybe
0: yeah i um i I feel that because I was a journalism major. Um, my kind of approach to fiction is documentarian in a way, just kind of like I'm on the street, something's going down, let me sort of note and take note and make sure, let me hear the dialogue, let me kind of pay attention to how someone's standing Mm -hmm. and so I feel as though my fiction does have that, I'm always sort of going for that kind of realism in my
1: Well and The Color Purple actually brings up another right aspect of that too because there are parts of that book that are very mystical Right? Um, and then you get to the last page and it says, you know, thanks, uh, thanks to the characters of this book for coming, AW, author, and medium. Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay. Like, okay. <laughs> um, but there's a lot of psychological truth about relationships and power and poverty and love and all that stuff in the book, you mm-hmm. know? So I think the psychological part of it is also really interesting because you can veer pretty far from. Reality or realism, and still stay within the realm of psychological truth, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so, now as you were reading that last passage, um, I was thinking about Avery and her parents, right? So, because it's a big, as you said, what were your parents afraid you were going to become? You know, Um,
0: I don't know what that. That's clearly,
1: um, you know, a theme that runs through a lot of that idea of authority and of the previous generation trying to teach Mm -hmm. the next generation and how futile maybe that is ultimately because you are going to become your own person.
0: And also too, I just, I love writing kids as I remember kids and as I know them to be, which is not so innocent and the... People get into stuff when you're young. Like, you... Is that the gothic part?
1: Yes. Okay, the California gothic. So I started with that term from my friend Taylor Negron. Taylor was a comedian and um, really brilliant artist, actor... The pizza delivery guy from, um, from um, uh, Ridge, uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, yeah. um, credited as Taylor Negron as himself, and he was nobody when he did that movie, <laughs> um, but Amy Heckerling, and he had a little joke going. But he started writing a lot of stories in the mid to late 90s, and he wrote about, he's from Pasadena, as he said, you know, we don't talk like that because I'm from Pasadena, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but he wrote a lot of stories about what he called California Gothic, you know, about people, you know, keeping their Oscars as doorstops in the kitchen, you know, and, and crazy mm-hmm. stories that are true. You know, he, th- he wrote a story about Lucille Ball um, because she was his acting teacher at one point in Hollywood in 1977. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he does this whole thing where she's with her cigarette on the stage going, you know, know your props, you know, and none of you in here are going to make it, you know, and just like really intense. <laughs> and, if, and everything he told you, you would think, that's a lie, that never happened. And then you find out later, oh my god, that Like, that really did happen. Yeah.
0: I remember someone read an early draft of Elsewhere, and she said, don't expect to sell these books. Like, she said, don't (laughs) expect to sell this book. These kids, like, I've never heard kids speak like this before in my life. These kids are crazy. And I was thinking, but uh, that's how we spoke. Yeah, that was your reality. I don't want to clean them up. I don't want to clean up their language. Mm -hmm. I don't want to sanitize.
1: And you don't want to lampoon them either. And Alice Walker had the same issue using the vernacular for Seeley, you know, and like what would Seeley talk like, Mm -hmm. and how does Nettie talk a little better, you Mm know? mm -hmm. Um, And people in the book try to get her to talk better later in the story, right? Right. Um, And Alice Walker was very committed to Eatonton, Georgia, you know, and to her grandmother Mm -hmm. and those and her people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. How much time? Are we all right we, with time? Well, no, One or two more um, quick questions, and then we'll get to the important part. <laughs> the wine and the cheese and the signings. So you can okay. run home and read.
0: So what makes California different than any... What makes California a character? Why, why, do, why are people hmm. looking at California right now? A lot of the, and why are the best writers always looking at California? God, I don't even know if I can... I can tell you why I'm looking at California, <laughs> but... Um, I mean I'm born and raised here and I find it endlessly fascinating and I find it fascinating in ways that I think I feel like I'm looking at California in ways that other writers aren't necessarily uh, I'm, I'm looking at it in a different way again it's the small things. It's one of the reasons why I love short stories. It's the the small moments, the small interactions, um, and trying to figure out why I feel different when I go anywhere else in the world. I mean, I'm pretty well-traveled. I've been various places, whether or not it's like Africa or, you know... Maine, I don't know, wherever I'm going. There's a feeling that I get when I come back home. And maybe everybody has that depending on where you're going or where you're from. But there's a feeling about California when I come back home that just feels like I'm like, I get take my pants off at the end of the day or something. It's just so much more comfortable and open and expanse. Um, I just feel that and um, and so again I'm just trying to write about the corners and the people who don't necessarily get written about um, writing about class in a way that's just I'm trying again just middle class folks mm-hmm. um, just trying to document that in some ways because again I feel like a lot of literature it's sort of binary like we're writing about you know, I don't know, Bel Air and mm-hmm. Kardashian type folks or something. Mm-hmm. Um, or we're writing about the quote unquote hood. And neither of that is my subject matter. Neither of, none of that's right. my experience. I'm just like, you know, just a girl from West Covina. Right. What do you
1: You know, that's part that's of what, all. I don't know how many of you guys saw that movie Dope that came out last year. If you haven't, Such a great do movie. yourself a favor. Um, because it yeah. also is trying to not be straight out of Compton. Right? Exactly. Uh, exactly. And it and it works on so many different levels. Mm-hmm. The kid wants to go to Harvard, and the guy's like, "Who are you to think you're going to go to Harvard?" Yeah, you know. Yeah. And it gets complicated, not simpler. The mm-hmm. deeper it goes. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing about California, of course, is it has its own mythology. So everything is either you know kind of with that mythology or against it in a way. So you're having both of those experiences. I think. Uh, one or two other quick questions before we um we move on. Yes. Hi.
0: Hi, Jim. <laughs> hi. And um, uh,
2: downtown Los Angeles is, as... Changed so much in the last, yes, you've been living there 10 years. Um, do you think that that's made you want to capture the history and look back at Pretty Mason and Huntington? Has that motivated your desire, yeah. your desire to be a uh, uh, member? While it's
0: yeah. still there? Yeah, I mean, I, I would have written about downtown regardless because I'm just, it's fascinating to me. But I do think that there was a kind of document. Documentation that I wanted to get down on the page, and so many of the places that I've written about are already gone. Um, so many people that I used to know have died already. Lots of just folks where we'd see each other in the mm-hmm. local coffee the shop. The characters, yeah, yeah. Whatever happened to so and so? He died. He didn't mm-hmm. hear. Mm-hmm. You know. <laughs> so yeah, I think part of me was just trying to get this, this little bit of time down on the page because it's very different from 2005 and, and it's, it's increasingly different and I don't even know if that version of downtown will be recognizable 10 years from now, who knows but, mm-hmm. but I do think I was thinking about
1: that too no, there's no question, you definitely were <laughs> yeah. yeah anybody else? oh hi hi Um, So um,
2: I'm interested in what you said about like class and assimilation and writing from um, the identity position as a writer of color. Um, I'm not going to like structure a question but more ask you to kind of just speak on assimilation, um, you know, the origins of your characters in like a kind of childhood idea of blackness and then their adult reclamation
0: of it after a simulation. If that seems fascinating. Yeah. Well. You want
1: to just read this out loud? The whole I thing? know.
0: I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, Elsewhere addresses all of that and it, again, it's like every writer writes their first novel is usually this kind of Buildings Roman autobiographical thing and Elsewhere is... It's not memoir, but it has those autobiographical elements. And so, like my character, Avery, we moved from 80th and Vermont, South Central L.A. when I was eight, to the suburbs, which back then were mostly white. Um, and, and you did that for your safety. Yeah, yeah, it was like kind of at the height of all the gang stuff and so my dad moved us from South Central LA to West Covina and it was like moving to Mars <laughs> it really was because and the other thing that people don't really talk about in LA, whatever neighborhood you're born and raised in, that's kind of the neighborhood you stay in. Right. So we were like on 80th of Vermont. So I didn't really this
1: like like ten miles due south of yeah, right yeah. We staying. never went yeah.
0: anywhere outside <laughs> yeah. our neighborhood. Yeah. Maybe to Huntington Beach, that was like a big schlep. Mm-hmm. But mainly we just so to move 30 minutes up the road to West Covina and go from a place where everybody was black. And then suddenly, I was the weird, I was strange to my classmates in 1976. you had never
1: felt like a minority before. No,
0: really. of no. course not. Yeah. So it was just kind of like, wait, what do you mean I sound weird? What do you mean I look weird? What do you mean my hair is weird? What do you mean we're poor? I mean, it was all these revelations. Um, and so... I think that was kind of the beginning of me becoming a writer. Frankly, just kind of like mm-hmm. that epiphany of difference <laughs> yeah. and being seen as different and trying to figure out and identity, not feeling different, right? Yeah, you feel different. No, but I kind of got on board with, oh, I got to figure this out, you know. <laughs> So there's a scene, for example, in the novel where Avery's, like, practicing her white voice. But the funny thing about assimilation is that eventually it happens whether or not you're trying, you know. If you're in a in a, in a certain kind of milieu, or uh, especially if you're a little kid. And um, so, there was a time in my life where I was feeling really uncomfortable for being a weirdo, or like... I don't fit into all these things I'm supposed to fit into and I just feel strange and then there's like another epiphany where it's like that's black identity where it's all these things at once it's not this one thing and to really have fun with that and understand that and embrace that and it's kind of what that David Bowie moment was about earlier and all of that so Mm -hmm. I don't know if that answers the question, but Thank you so
1: much. this is the study in that whole thing, though. Seriously, and, and because the character goes to a place like USC for college, right, and experiences a very different reality than than what she's experienced <laughs> before, and still um, there are vestiges of Avery that you know, are like genealogical, you know, that aren't mm-hmm. going to change, Right, but there's right. all and then the contrast with Mosimo and the whole, you know there's just so much in the book about that process and other characters assimilating or not assimilating or adapting or not adapting yeah. um, to their and environment. And
0: becoming a master at code switching, you know, yeah, just totally. kind of...
1: I mean, you handle that stuff so well, and I'm not sure there's a theory behind it exactly, but there's so much experience behind it, and there's and there's so much truth behind it that I think it's 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 fascinating and thank you Chris. and fun to read. Thank fun you. Read. Thank
0: you for teaching my book.
1: Oh away. please, you you owe me <laughs> dollars. I mean, tens of dollars, maybe even. Thank you all for coming out thank tonight, you. and thank you Dana thank for you. these great books, and thank you Skylight.
0: Yes, thank you Skylight. And thank you, Dan.
1: And thank you, Dan. Beautiful, beautiful counterpoint. You've been
2: listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.